Stephen, I have a slight uh, feedback out here about the mid-range. If you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to two places. Uh, First of all, to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And then to Acts chapter 8. Great passage here from Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And then to uh, Acts chapter 8. We pick up with verse 4. Now those who were scattered, that's scattered from uh, Jerusalem, I almost said London, (laughs) those who were scattered from Jerusalem, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and they received, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Apologies. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands, on whom I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. Amen. You know, when I was a little boy, I remember uh, our insurance agent sitting in our living room with my parents uh, discussing insurance with them. Now, we all know about insurance. Insurance is very important. Uh, most people have, uh, in the States, people will have health insurance. Uh, they will have life insurance. Um, they will have car insurance, automotive insurance. Uh, they will have uh, uh, homeowner's insurance. Uh, many of these we have here in the UK as well. But the, the really striking thing to me was that this insurance agent, this businessman had come to our home to spend time with my parents, to get to know them, to get to know their needs, uh, to get to know their situation, uh, so that he could recommend to them the, the appropriate kind of insurance for them. For, because for, for him as an insurance agent, yes, of course, he wanted to make money. Uh, yes, of course, it was important that he sells insurance policies. But for him, he realized that the only way he could do this effectively and successfully was by getting to know his clients. And that's what this insurance agent did. And not only this insurance agent, uh, in that time, you couldn't make it as an insurance agent unless you really took the time to get to know your prospective clients. Same was true with banking. Uh, I remember a, a time when uh, you could go into your local bank and actually the people there would know who you are. And if you had to apply for a loan, uh, the loan officer would take some time to get to know you, to get to know your circumstances. Not only to make sure that you could actually pay back the loan, but also uh, to make sure that whatever loan you had was going to be right for you. Uh, even business in that time. Uh, I remember the time, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to be nostalgic here at all. Hopefully you'll see where I'm going. Uh, this is not about nostalgia saying, hey, oh, I wish we had this time uh, yet again. But I do remember in business where, yeah, there were contracts, there were agreements, but actually most business people did their business by giving their word and shaking their hands. Uh, and for many business people, their word was their bond. And the word was often given before a contract was ever signed. And if subsequently other details came to light, that business person would often maintain the agreement even if the agreement was no longer good for the business person. Well, big contrast to today. I mean, insurance companies, uh, you can apply for insurance online now. It's very impersonal. They don't really care about you. They don't really care to get to know you. 
what uh, they care about is whether or not you meet their criteria and whether or not you make their payments. There's not even an attempt to generate loyalty with most of their customers. They expect and sometimes even encourage their customers to change insurance companies from time to time. You know, I get a, a note from uh, my car insurance company that says, hey, you know, you might be able to find a better deal someplace else. So, you know, go ahead and go there. Uh, and it's just like, that's crazy. That's crazy. But, you know, I remember public holidays. You know, public holidays used to be about relationships. Uh, American Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, Easter. These, these were celebrations where families would come together to celebrate their relationships and also to give thanks to God in the case of Thanksgiving or to worship God in the case of Christmas or Easter. The family would come together. The family would worship together. And the real issue was, are you spending time? Are you building relationship? I remember what a difficult thing it was uh, when I was first negotiating with my mom whether or not I could go spend uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas with Karen and her family uh, because it was such a deep and cherished kind of thing. Then we began to see a shift and, and now the idea of relationship in some places in the United States and I think here too in the United Kingdom is uh, for uh, in advance of Christmas perhaps to go out and take advantage of the Black Friday specials that you might get. And gone are the time to take time together not to do anything but build relationship. It's changed so significantly. And now consumerism steals the meaning and value of Christmas. Just think about what we're talking about with regard to the lockdown. Many people want the lockdown to be over at the beginning of December so that they can open the shops and rebuild the economy through the Christmas buying season. Oh, they might say, well, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's good for families to get together as well, but the real reason is economic, not relational. And it's changed and distorted the whole meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas now for many people has become what do you buy and what gifts do you give? And even in families, there's a, a bit of a tension on if you're exchanging gifts, you know, you got to spend a little bit more than you did last year. You got to buy a little bit better. And if somebody uh, maybe in your extended family buys you a gift, you need to make sure that you spend just as much money, if not more money on the gift. And actually the gift is not so important anymore. It's uh, does the box include the receipt so I can go back and get the money. So then I can buy what I really want, what I really need. Marriage and parenting, they used to have a value in their own right. I mean, people didn't have to ask, is it worth it to be a, a mother or a father? Is it worth it to get married? People saw that there was an intrinsic value to marriage and to parenting uh, because families were a network of sacred relationships societies valued marriage, parenting, and families as essential for the health and coherence of the society, and as such, priceless. Now, prostitution and pornography have shifted the act of marriage, and you adults know what I'm talking about, from something that is relational to something that is more transactional. 
the distortions of healthy sexuality are affecting marriages everywhere. Parenting is no longer valued in its own right, but has become a distraction from actually having a real job. And we talk about what's called the motherhood penalty. And that's the penalty is it's going to take you out of the workforce. It's going to take you out of your value, of your contribution to society. Women are no longer valued as mothers, but they're compelled into the workplace uh, or perhaps even encouraged to sell their own bodies for sex or surrogacy. Church. Church used to provide a sacred space, a place of relational encounter with God and with others in which people could build communities that would spread the kingdom. Churches offered their ministry for free, living by faith in God for their provision. Oh, certainly church members would give money to the church. Actually, they'd give it to Jesus through the church. Church members would give money, but they willingly gave money as an act of love and service, not because they received some benefit and not because the pastor or others in the church had to spend an hour asking them to give. Now, churches sell tickets to worship and ministry. And these tickets are tiered according to the price, ensuring that those who pay more get close to where the action is, closer to an encounter with God. We have in our Western societies especially, but it's affecting the people around the world, we have reduced people and relationships to transactions where we compute the cost, but we miss the value. And this is what I call the transactional spirit of the age. And this is reinforced at all levels of society, often in the name of market capitalism, but it is a distortion of both markets and capitalism. If we're going to dive into the future that God has, And we know with this coronavirus and the whole global situation now, it really seems like everything is in in turmoil. And we've said throughout this series that we need to stop looking to go back to normal and pursue the different that God is bringing into the world. And if we are going to pursue the different that God is bringing into the world, we must actively resist this transactional spirit of the age as the people of God. And to do so, we need to realize this is nothing new. We actually see it in the New Testament. The transactional spirit of the age is the spirit behind Simon the magician in this story. Now, as we read the story, you see this. This guy, he'd been in Samaria. He'd received a lot of accolades. He'd received a lot of money. That's the implication. Uh, He'd received a lot of attention because of his magic. He was doing some magical things. And by the way, magic was not pulling rabbits out of the hat. You know, magic was not taking a couple of rings and mysteriously having them come together. That's not what it meant by magic. Magic was using potions and formulas and, and different activities 
to try to, to heal people, to shape reality, to cause miracles to happen. And it was effective because he was calling attention to people. In fact, uh, ta- calling attention to himself. He was gathering the attention of people. And, uh, and people were saying, well, hey, this must be the guy that's connected with this God that we call great, not the God of the Bible, by the way. But after hearing Philip preach, who'd come from the Jerusalem persecution, he heard Philip preach. He saw the miracles that God did through Philip. Uh, many people in Samaria were responding. And so Simon also responded and received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. There's no reason really to doubt that that had happened. He made uh, you know, a genuine response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John come. They hear that, wow, there's some cool things happening. And they love to be around this kind of stuff. And they love to advance the kingdom. So they came. They discovered that uh, Philip hadn't, they'd baptized people, but they didn't really lay hands on people and pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, so people didn't really understand this. So Peter and John said, okay, we need to get all these Christians together and start praying for them. They were laying hands on them. The Holy Spirit would fall upon them. Uh, something clearly was happening to them. We don't know exactly what. When they received the Holy Spirit, uh, Simon, who'd been following Philip and now was following Peter and John, I mean, he's, he, he sees this and he really wants it. Now, I believe that there was a genuine desire in his heart. I, I don't want to impute anything evil to him. Uh, the text doesn't say that. Uh, I think that there was a genuine desire in his heart to know the things of God, but at the same time, he offers money to get this power, to, to receive this power. He was trying to turn what was based on a relationship with God into something based on a transaction. And Peter sees this, and he sees his heart, and he says, Simon, your heart is not right before God. You don't have your priorities straight. You don't have your priorities straight. And part of the reason is that you've got bitterness in your heart. You're holding on to unforgiveness. You're holding on to resentment of some things. You haven't really gone through to release those things. And also, man, you are filled with iniquity. Now remember what iniquity is. Iniquity is a brokenness that leads to sin. We all have iniquity in our lives. And so he's not, Peter in here is not saying, hey, listen, man, you are actively sinning. What he's saying is you're broken. You have a brokenness about you. And what you're doing is sinful because of your brokenness. Your heart is not right before God. You need to get your heart right. How do you get your heart right? He says you need to repent. You need to repent of this sin that's in your life, this desire in your life, and ask the Lord to forgive you if that's possible. And so clearly the man is broken. Now he doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond in pride. He says, oh, please pray for me that what you said doesn't happen to me. So there's a, there's a hunger, there's a desire inside of him, but ultimately his sin was taking something based on relationship and trying to reduce it to something based on a transaction in which he gives some money and he receives this benefit, this gift of God. He doesn't realize that the things of God are free 
for everyone whose heart is right before God and who has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this is the sin of reducing things to transaction. This is the transactional spirit of the age. And frankly, we see this evil throughout world history and perhaps never more so than right now. You see this evil right now in human trafficking and human slavery, which is greater in the world right now than it's ever been in history. You see this evil in people smuggling, where people smugglers will take somebody's last penny just to drop them in a place or even leave them to die. You see this in pornography. You see this in social media that tries to transactionalize friendship and turn it into a way to make money. You see this even in churches that are selling themselves and leaders who are selling, selling themselves and, and trying to leverage the gift of God for personal gain and benefit. The transactional spirit of the age wants to replace meaning with information and relationship with transaction so that everything, including individual people and people's lives, can be leveraged for money and controlled used for certain purposes. But we need to understand this has been around for millennia, but we can resist it. We need to understand as well, we need to see, secondly, that the transactional spirit of the age works in very recognizable ways and follows a highly predictable process that we can choose to resist. We can interrupt this process. The first step in the transactional spirit of the age with regard to people is to depersonalize people. Depersonalize people. This means to deprive people of their personal characteristics, their individuality, their intrinsic worth as a human being. You see this in how the internet functions and, and to generate revenue from people. The internet works to gather us and reduce us to bits of information. It gathers details about our lives, information about our lives. And then out of that information, there are algorithms that are built. And these algorithms then begin to control what we see seek to influence us. More of that in a moment. We can also see this in how society promotes abortion. I saw this decades ago in the pro-life movement or, or the, the, the uh, pro-choice movement in the United States. What do we do? We call the baby in the womb a fetus. And it's true. But it's also a human being. We equate that human being as being the exact same thing as its mother, just a piece of flesh in the body, rather than understanding that that human being in the womb is, has a unique DNA signature and is a unique human being. We depersonalize so that we can then 
instrumentalize or deal with it, control it the way that we want to. So depersonalizing is always the first thing that happens. Taking away people's humanity. Taking away people, your understanding of them as individual human beings. You see that in in so much immigration policy. I could go on and on and on. We see it around us all the time. Then the second stage is to transactionalize. To transactionalize people and relationships. This means to reduce the various aspects of life to simple transactions. We make everything a kind of transaction. As I said before, businesses no longer seek to build loyalty with their customers, but they see their customers as a a possible transaction to generate revenue. Friendliness then in that kind of context in the marketplace often becomes nothing more than a way of closing the deal. A fake relationship, a false face simply designed to manipulate people. Dating has become a series of exchanges where a guy thinks that he should get something simply because he's taken a, a woman out to dinner. Where we start to equate the relationship and say, well, okay, if I give this into the relationship, what am I going to give out, get out of the relationship? And that's transactionalizing that relationship. And that's the second stage. When you start to depersonalize, you can easily transactionalize. And then the third dynamic that's happening is to indoctrinate people, to seek to modify people's behaviors, thoughts, and perceptions so that they fit with a transactional understanding. This is one of the things that social media does. It deals with sections, it stimulates portions of your brain that produce dopamine so that by uh, doing certain things like uh, uh, creating a, a, uh, an emoji or, or getting a sticker, applying something in there, it, it gives you a, a dopamine hit. Uh, the person who receives it gets a dopamine hit. Uh, that's why all of these uh, the programs, they want, as soon as you get a message in, to, to have some kind of uh, notification that comes up because it stimulates parts of your brain to condition you immediately to go after what is grabbing your attention. It's a form of behavior modification. They modify your behaviors, your thoughts, and even your perceptions so they fit with that transactional understanding. You see this in advertising. It's all around us, this kind of indoctrination. And then there's the dynamic of then monetizing. We've used this word before. Monetizing means to establish a material cost to everything so that it can be easily subject to a transaction. Anything you can monetize, you can transactionalize. Anything that you can say, okay, this is how much this costs, you can turn it into some kind of transaction whereby you give me this and I give you that. And we see this all around us. Experiences have been monetized. Companies are pushing you, you have this this great experience, and they generate this kind of context where you'll have a great experience. But you know what? Experiences used to be valued through the lens of relationship. If I enjoyed a a roller coaster ride with a good friend of mine, uh, it wasn't just 
because of the roller coaster that I was enjoying that. It was because I could see what my friend was doing. I could hear my friend's screams of terror that would cause me to laugh uh, maniacally uh, on that roller coaster. And that's what was the experience. It came out of the relationship. It didn't come out of the dynamism of the roller coaster. Relationships that have been monetized. You see this in surrogacy. You see this in dating apps. You see this in pornography. You see this in the motherhood penalty. Where we, as I mentioned before, where society says, well, you know, you're, you're just a mom. You're no value to society. And so you need to, you know, get the baby out, put the baby in childcare, and get back into the workplace because that's where you're going to find your real value. That's monetizing. That's monetizing a person. And the world devalues mothering now because it resists monetizing. You see this in religion, including Christianity, maybe especially Christianity. Religion has been monetized. Uh, worship, you, you pay now to go to a worship service. Giving, uh, the way that uh, it takes away the relationship and just urges you to give and, and now you can give so much and get a product in return. Some kind of transaction there. You add the promise of blessing to giving. Oh, if you give this much, then God is going to transactionalize you and make sure that you get more. The teaching, the conferences, even church membership, all of these things have been monetized. One of the most powerful questions, and it's been asked here in the UK, and I, 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 and I don't know the f- figure here in the UK, but somebody asked this question. What is the value of the U.S. church to the U.S. economy? And I know this has been estimated now in the U.K. Um, The value of the U.S. church to the U.S. economy has been estimated as $1.2 trillion. So in other words, Christianity adds $1.2 trillion to the U.S. economy. And I know a lot of church leaders, you know, who will look at this and stand on this and say, well, you know, that's great. You know, that, 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 that shows that we're offering value. It's not great because the question is a wrong question. The question monetizes something that God never intended to be monetized. Our value to the world does not lie in the fact that we add $1.2 trillion to the U.S. economy. Our value is in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The church has an intrinsic value even if everybody is poor and broke and add not one cent to the economy. The church has value because we are the people of God. We are the body of Christ. And the world is just monetizing us and anything that resists monetization will be destroyed or ignored and we need to understand how this transactional spirit of the age is at work in our lives right now because you need to resist it you need to fight it third we must resist the deceptions of the transactional spirit of the age and we capitulate, them, capitulate to them so often. You must refuse to evaluate yourself based on how much you are worth. Either in terms of what you can give financially or what you can offer 
in terms of service. Or maybe how important your job is or how successful you are. I can't tell you the number of times over the years that I've had Christians come up to me and say, "Uh, Rod, I, I feel worthless because I don't have enough to give. I can't, I can't give what I would like to give. Or, Rod, you know, I, I feel worthless because, I, you know, I'm caring for my kids and it's taking me a lot of time and I just don't have extra time to serve in the church. Now, I feel worthless because, you know what, I, I'm not really a big business leader. Uh, I clean offices. Your value does not depend on your money, on your service, on your giving. You are intrinsically valuable and you must recognize your intrinsic value because of God's image. You're created in God's image. Jesus died for you on the cross and you are a child of God. Resist that deception. Refuse to reframe any relationship in transactional terms, including your business relationships. So I mentioned, you know, the the whole kind of dating comment. And I've actually heard guys, not any guy in City Temple, otherwise uh, I would have dealt with it. Uh, I've actually heard guys say, yeah, you know, I bought her a nice meal and all she did was give me a kiss. Well, I don't know about you, but when I started dating my wife, I didn't want to date a prostitute. And if you think you're going to buy a relationship, that's what you're doing. You've just capitulated to the transactional spirit of the age. Or I've heard pastors say, again, no pastor or elder in this church, uh, I've heard pastors say, you know, I really love these people because... Boy, they really give a lot to the church. You know, I don't know if I've ever heard a pastor say, you know, I really love that person because they don't do a single thing in the church. But they're here faithfully, they love Jesus, and they really encourage me. And that's sad. That's sad. We must recognize people as God sees them. We must be diligent and persistent to make a choice to see how we might serve and bless other people at no cost, with no expectations, other than simply serving them and blessing them. We must also refuse to give in to the craving for novelty, to to experience something unexpected, to always follow what is grabbing our attention. We have to remember that the aspects of our lives that have lasting meaning and value are fundamentally relational. They rise up within the context of living And they are habitual. They are the things that we do day by day. uh, The things that we do following a pattern. I've always been amazed here at City Temple of how precious the Passover Seder is and how precious the Christmas lunch is. And who knows, we might even be able to do a Christmas lunch this year. We'll see what God does. Uh, We'll see what opens up to us. But uh, 
But there have been a couple of times when we said, well, maybe we shouldn't do a Passover Seder. And I tell you, we just get stormed by people. Why? Because it's the thing that we do every year. But it's the same thing. We follow the same Seder every year. Well, yeah, that's great. Why is it so important? It's important because it is what we do every year. It's important because it is what we follow every year. That is what gives it its value. Every morning, I get what I call the captain's breakfast. And Karen brings me the captain's breakfast every morning. Now, what's captain's breakfast? It's uh, coffee, porridge, and toast. CPT, abbreviation for captain, so I call it the captain's breakfast. You know, that says to me more about Karen's love for me than the trip we took to Inverness, than any fun experience that we've had. And it speaks to me because it's fundamentally relational. She doesn't do it for any person, any other person. It's in the normal context of living, and it's something that happens on a regular pattern. So we must refuse to give in to this craving for novelty and the unexpected. We must refuse to reduce the gospel to a transaction which robs the gospel of its power to change lives and shape our world. I mean, so many messages. Think about it. I've heard so many times people say, well, give your life to Jesus and God will give you. You'll get something out of it. You'll be happier. You'll be healthier. You'll go from strength to strength to strength to strength to strength. Actually, the Bible says, give your life to Jesus and it's going to hurt. But it's the only way to have relationship with God that leads to eternal life. There's the lie of the prosperity gospel. For many it said, if you give God this, God will give you that. It reduces the relationship with God to a mere transaction where God becomes a heavenly banker who must give you what you demand, not because of the relationship, because of your right to it. There's this lie that if you come to Jesus, you're always going to be happy. It's not true. But Jesus is the only one who can redeem us, who can save us, who reconciles us to God and to one another. To resist the lies that are coming at you every single day, you must remember that you are not for sale. Remember that we will find our deepest meaning and value in that which cannot be reduced to a transaction. We find meaning and value through those patterns of living, repeating the traditions of life, the experience that we go through every single day. Refuse. Refuse to sacrifice yourself to a transaction. Never sell yourself for anything because we belong to Jesus who sacrificed himself for us so that we might be in eternal relationship 
with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Once we recognize that the transactional spirit of the age has been working in and out of history, once we recognize how it works today uh, so that we can resist that, once we recognize the lies that it is trying to sell us, then we can choose and we must choose, we must overcome the transactional spirit of the age in Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the world. We overcome the transactional spirit of the age in Christ as we live the gospel relationally and meaningfully every single day. Every day, you must live out of your relationship with Jesus knowing who you are in Christ. You're a child of God. You're the bride of Christ. You're the body of Christ. You're united with Christ. That is your reality. And anybody who understands really who they are in Christ will never choose to sell themselves. It also means that as Christians, we must live openly and honestly before others without fear without fear. I mean, one of the the biggest issues for a lot of people is that, well, you know, if I live like this, then those transactional people are going to take advantage of me. And there's always a risk there. We always must be on our guard against those who would reduce us or our lives to mere transactions. And we always must realize that there are parts of life where transactions are essential. Buying groceries, you know, paying for uh, clothing. But the body is more than clothes, and our lives are more than what we eat, as Jesus reminds us. So we must live openly and honestly before others without fear, remembering that he who is in you, in us, is greater than he who is in the world. It's greater, Jesus is greater than the transactional spirit of the age. It's 1 John 4.4. 4. Thirdly here, if we are going to live so as to overcome the transactional spirit of the age, we must every day practice Christian spiritual disciplines. We must pray. We must study the scriptures. We must practice generosity. We must worship the Lord. We must gather together with other Christians in Jesus Christ. These are spiritual disciplines that we need to practice. We also need to choose to serve others, actively choose to serve others without cost. We must choose to pay attention to the things of God. Look for how God is moving. Look for what God is doing. Look, listen to what God might be saying to you in your spirit through your dreams. And you must faithfully do the things, the good things that God puts before you to do. Be faithful in these things. Because as we practice the spiritual disciplines, as we serve others, as we pay attention to the things of God, as we do the thing, the good that God has for us to do, these things will enable us to perceive, to discern, and to increase the meaning and value and even our satisfaction in all areas of our lives. These activities open our eyes to see what is really valuable. not just what things cost. As we live every day to overcome this spirit, we must defend the intrinsic value of people and relationships. 
as we seek to maintain healthy norms, healthy courtesies, healthy customs, all flowing out of our Christian faith. It's become so popular today to not observe common courtesies. These things have gone away. And a lot of people think, well, they're just conservative values. They're looking to the past. But it's more than this. People who fail to observe these healthy norms, customs, these relational dynamics of society, they are depersonalizing other people. They are depersonalizing other people. One of the things that is very difficult at times, uh, but I try to make a, a point of doing, is every time I walk by somebody begging on the street, even though I have no money to give, I do try to look at them and acknowledge them as a human being. And it's not easy. Because as soon as you do that, you identify with their suffering. You identify with what they're going through. But failing to acknowledge their humanity, the fact they're created in the image of God in Christ Jesus, is an act of depersonalizing that person. And it is a sin before God. So, we must defend the intrinsic value of all people and all relationships. Refusing to reduce them to simple transactions. We need next to seek out the relational in every aspect of our lives, especially in our work. Now that doesn't mean most people that we're going to deal with in the, in the workplace are looking at things transactionally, especially if it's a business-to-business kind of thing. Uh, I've experienced that certainly in, in all the work we've done around the redevelopment of the building and so many other things uh, here at City Temple because we have so many relationships with different entities out in the world. But you know, I persist, I persist in seeking out relationships and I persist in building the relational and I persist in refusing to allow somebody to reduce their relationship with me simply to a transaction. Because in doing so, we testify to the truth of Jesus Christ and people see Jesus Christ in our lives. So every one of these relationships, we need to look to strengthen them with our biblical Christian values, the relational values we talked about just last week. And finally, we must, if we're going to overcome this transactional spirit of the age, we must relentlessly seek and proclaim the real meaning and value of everything. We must be relentless in resisting the commercialization of Christmas. We must be relentless and not allowing people to reduce other people to transactions. We must seek every human being's value, the meaning of their life. We must seek the real value in living. The real value of things like mothers and parents and relationships. 
and we must find the meaning and value of everything, not just on its own, but in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Because the fact that Jesus Christ came and was born as a human being and lived both fully human and fully God, the fact that Jesus Christ, He sacrificed Himself on the cross to redeem us into a relationship with the the triune God of the universe, the fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead, bodily from the dead, means that this world was never designed by God to be reduced to a transaction. This world was designed by God relationally. And we will only experience the truest meaning and value in this world in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and in a relationship with other people. And we must relentlessly seek this and proclaim this in our lives as Christians. You know, the Lord asks all of us through the prophet Isaiah, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God, in this question, is challenging all people, especially His people, that what is most valuable and most meaningful in life cannot be bought. It cannot be reduced to a series of transactions no matter how much money you have. And if you spend your life, you spend your money, you spend your labor, and all of it is to satisfy transactions then you're living a misspent life. It's actually, in some respects, one of the blessings of lockdown because it is forcing us as a population to step away from this transactional spirit at least a little bit. You know, in the world today, people are talking about things. They talk about things like defending women, caring for the environment. We say black lives matter and that we need to grow the church. But you're not defending women if you only see their value as agents in the workplace. You are not caring for the environment by reducing your stewardship of the environment simply to carbon trading, as many companies do. It's big business now. The transaction, billions and billions and billions of pounds, reducing the care for the environment to a transaction. You're not showing that black lives matter by simply buying some product in their online shop. You're not growing the church by selling tickets to a concert. Truly defending women, truly caring for the environment, truly saving black lives, truly growing healthy families and healthy churches requires that we resist the transactional spirit of this age and pursue the kingdom of God, which values all human beings, 
as created in the image of God, which values all of creation as created by God and given to us for stewardship. Through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus Christ has redeemed the world to himself through relationship. We must always remember Jesus was betrayed by a transaction involving 30 pieces of silver. But we are saved by God's free gift of grace. Father God, we love you, we worship you, we honor you. I pray, Father, that this word spoken into the heavenlies will accomplish all that you intend for your glory, honor, and praise. I pray, Father, that any who hear the word and feel offended might be offended into taking action and changing their heart and their mind. And I thank you, God, that you have not seen a single one of us as a transaction. I thank you, Jesus, that there was not one single instant of eternity where you said, were they really worth it? I thank you, Father, that you have shown the value of everything through the lens of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I pray, Holy Spirit, the one who is in us, who is greater than he who is in the world, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to overcome this transactional spirit of the age in how we live, in how we talk, in how we pray, in all of life, to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.